Welcome, this is Philippe Albuquerque. I am the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Neurointerventional Surgery. Today is the next in our series of JNIS podcasts. I am thrilled today to be featuring a manuscript entitled Fetal Radiation Exposure Risk in the Pregnant Neurointerventionalist. This manuscript is currently on the JNIS website and will appear in the October print issue of the JNIS. I am honored today to welcome the two authors of this manuscript, Stephanie Chen and Marie-Christine Brunet. Stephanie is at the University of Miami, Department of Neurological Surgery, and Marie-Christine Brunet is at the Department of Neurosurgery at the Neuro at McGill University. Welcome authors, and thank you so much for taking part in this podcast today. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. I will say at the outset that this podcast is supported by Rapid Medical, the maker of the Komanichi device. Uh, it, the Komanichi is the only temporary coiling assist device that does not require parent vessel occlusion during coiling procedures or the need for long-term antiplatelet medication for permanent stenting. This device is available in Europe and was recently cleared for marketing by the FDA. For further information, please see their website. So doctors Chen and Brunet, congratulations on this manuscript. I really felt, and as, as did our editorial board, that this, this really was a very important manuscript uh, for our field. Um, can you briefly summarize what was the impetus? What pushed you guys to want to pursue this study to write this paper? I think really the idea came along uh, when I first got pregnant uh, back then when I was uh, at the time senior fellow at the University of Miami. Um, before that, I didn't really, you know, look up uh, anything regarding pregnancy uh, and radiation exposure. But of course, my first uh, thought when I got the positive test result was to look that up. And really, um, you know, the anxiety and fear uh, of this unknown um, uh, regarding the radiation exposure during pregnancy was, was kind of um, stressful for me at first. So I looked at the literature, of course, and I quickly realized that there is really minimal literature and really solid data regarding, uh, you know, uh, occupational ex fetal exposure, especially in our specific field of neurointervention. So there's a few paper uh, looking at cardiologists and body IR, but again, a few only case reports. So um, as I looked it up, I think we realized that was really like a, something that we're not uh, aware of. And of course, that can have a, a great impact on, you know, a female that want to pursue such a specialty as a neurointervention. Yeah. And just to add, I, I think that um, a lot of people, when they think about going into an interventional subspecialty, um, are considering these risks. You know, I think just having signed up for doing the fellowship, many attendings, many people would tell me like, oh, you're doing endo, you better freeze your eggs. And I think that that's not just limited to women. I think both men and women are thinking about the effects of radiation. And the, the fact of the matter is that there's just very little information on it. Yeah, I completely agree. I was struck by the, actually one of the very first sentences of, of your manuscript in the background that neurointervention is one of the most male-dominated subspecialties 
uh, in medicine. And, and it really is quite true. Um, you know, unfortunately, I have to admit that, that I have yet to train a, a female a neurointerventionalist, despite, despite many interviews and, and so forth, and, and a real interest in doing that. But I, I would like to discuss a, a bit what, what are some of the other biases or prejudices that you uh, may have faced outside of the challenges of potential childbirth within our field? Yeah, I think, you know, both in neurosurgery and in neurointervention, it's almost 90% men. And I think that part of the issue there is that women don't see enough mentorship. They don't see women who are successful within the field um, and therefore have a role model to follow. And I think that not all mentors need to be women, but I think that men have to be understanding of sort of the specific challenges of being a woman in a male dominated subspecialty. And that includes, you know, childbirth, as we said, but it also is and can be isolating. And also, you know, you face a lot of microaggressions, which are, I think, ultimately not the biggest challenge of being a woman in a male dominated subspecialty. But, you know, I think you face comments from patients, you face comments from staff, you know, just general assumptions of incompetence or, you know, inappropriate comments from people. And all of these just take time to change people's perceptions. But I think it also takes visibility of women in the field and successful women in the field. And so that was another reason for the paper. You know, we really wanted to show that it takes support for women to be successful. And that includes, you know, figuring out how to be safely pregnant while being productive. That's a very interesting term, Stephanie, microaggressions. <laughs> I, I, I am wondering how you both mitigated the, the microaggressions during your, your training. Um, I, you know, I, I, I can't imagine, you know, doing that in the face of also uh, undertaking a very challenging fellowship. Can you discuss a, a few of those uh, challenges or, or difficulties? Sure. You know, I think, for instance, it's very common to be assumed that you are the nurse um, or that you offer your suggestions, your opinions, and your patient will sort of turn to the, the medical student in the room who's male and, and ask them what they think. Or, for example, um, you know, nurses and staff, they won't follow your recommendations or your orders because they just assume that you don't know what you're doing. Um, and then, of course, there's the like sexually inappropriate comments from patients and staff who think it's really harmless. And I think that it just takes a level of maturity and sort of calmness dealing with these and addressing them in a way that um is just repetitive <laughs> without, without getting very angry yourself because otherwise that takes a toll on yourself emotionally i don't know if marie had something else to add to yeah i think it's you know uh from my experience as well it's pretty much uh the same i would say uh like stephanie i, I experienced those things as well you know being assume you're the nurse and all of those things i think it's pretty common for all like young female doctors um, in pretty much like across medicine, but especially like in surgery and neurosurgery, I think it's, it's 
as a, even probably more important, I would say. And just to uh, complete with this, um, the mentorship that Stephanie was referring to, I think in, in neurosurgery um, and having like, you know, female mentors, um, I, I was lucky enough, like I was trained uh, in, in Quebec, um, in Canada. And it's probably just a matter of luck, uh, but I had two uh, female neurosurgeon doing endovascular, which is, I think, pretty rare in, in our field today. When we look at the statistics of, of like, you know, 90% of uh, male in our subspecialty. And when we go to meetings, uh, we're like, I, I would I would be like the only female uh, in a room full of male, like multiple times. So I was lucky in the sense that I had those two females um, doing hybrid, you know, endo and open in neurosurgery. So for me, like when I was in training, that was really like, I was looking up to them. Um, and I think that helped me uh, to pursue this, this subspecialty. And they both had also pregnancies uh, while working in INR. So again, that was also a little bit reassuring to, you know, to see not only read, but also know people that, you know, went through it and did fine. Yeah, I, I guess we could say that there is, um, systemic sexism within the neurointerventional field. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't think that that is true across medical subspecialties. However, you know, I can give you as an example, my wife is a pediatric neurosurgeon and um, she, she really doesn't encounter these kinds of, you know, sexist prejudices within her hospital. She certainly does outside of the hospital um, where, you know, she walks around in her scrubs at the grocery store and somebody asks her where she works as a nurse. But within, within the hospital and within the pediatric field, I think uh, it, there's much more acceptance um, of, of women as uh, you know, the, the physician leaders. Uh, so it's, it, it is really an unfortunate reality within our field. Yeah, I think that also speaks to the idea of you know, mentorship and visibility. I think that the majority of women who go into academic neurosurgery subspecialize in, if you look at the number who go uh, into academic neurosurgery who do a fellowship, the highest percentage is actually in pediatrics. So I think that, you know, having patients and staff and hospitals that are just much more accustomed to seeing women pediatric neurosurgeons is important for um, that acceptance of that perception. Absolutely. Well, I've done what I always do, which is, is stray uh, away from the manuscript. So I wanted to give you both an opportunity to summarize the findings of your manuscript, um, your methods and results, if you could. So basically it was, uh, you know, of course, like a, a case report, a retrospective analysis of uh, my exposure, uh, both uh, before and during pregnancy, and trying to compare and see uh, the difference. So before the pregnancy, I was basically just uh, wearing a standard lead, like a 0.5 millimeter uh, lead, and the room was equipped as well with the standard, I think, protection in most angio suites in 2020. The IR suite protection is equipped with the 0.5 lead glass overhead uh, mobile shield and then a lower body uh, lead shield as well. And there's also this additional uh, accessory vertical extension that most people don't end up using that you can just, um, you know, attach to the table. Uh, and that's pretty useful to fill up this gap. So between uh, the lower body shield and then the glass overhead shield. So that was the, you know, the basic 
uh, protection that we had, um, you know, standard both uh, before and during the pregnancy. Uh, for uh, the pregnancy uh, itself, as uh, written in the paper, I electively uh, chose to wear two double lead skirt. It was completely uh, up to me. So when I met with the uh, radiation protection center, uh, the director uh, really told me that it was completely unnecessary that the dose to the fetus would be probably undetectable if I was, you know, wearing proper lead uh, and, you, you know, using uh, standard measures. Uh, but still, as I was, you know, anxious, I decided to wear uh, those two skirts. Uh, so uh, that was what I did uh, from day one uh, of the pregnancy. And then, uh, of course, when you declare your pregnancy, the Department of Radiation will provide you with a, an additional fetal badge that you wear under the skirt, uh, which was, in, in my case, the Marion Genesis badge. And I also used another badge, which was the Marion uh, Instadose, um, which was also worn underneath the skirt. And it's like a wireless device that is connecting via your Bluetooth technology to your uh, computer or um, phone device. So you can basically have your readings anytime uh, on your phone. So that was uh, the the you know the material that we used uh, and then we compare basically all the uh, the exposure that i had on my uh, just the the standard collar badge uh, before the pregnancy and during the pregnancy and uh, there was no like uh, significant difference of overall maternal exposure uh, before and during the pregnancy although you can see there's a trend to a lesser exposure during my pregnancy which is you know explained by the fact that I was, you know, just more careful, uh, careful during the procedure, trying to stand far away from the table when possible, uh, trying to have someone between uh, me and the source uh, also when possible when, when I had an assistant uh, and limiting as much as possible the fast frames, um, collimating uh, more than I would do usually. All of those things, uh, I think, um, explain the trend to uh, the lesser exposure during the pregnancy. Uh, and then lastly, for the fetal exposure, as you can see, both on the uh, Marion Genesis badge, as well as the Marion Instadose, they were both completely um, undetectable uh, exposures. So during all pregnancy, uh, every month uh, was uh, zero MREM uh, that was reported on those reports. I'm curious if you looked at the other practitioners who were in the angio suite at the time and what their radiation exposure was and how it compared to yours, because you know, obviously it seems as if you took extra precautions, right? You wore double or triple lead, you collimated uh, probably more uh, strictly than you would if you were not pregnant. And frankly, you knew you were pregnant, right? And I would suggest, I would offer that many women probably don't know they're pregnant um, when they're, you know, engaging in this kind of work. So what would your recommendations be on that end? Well, I think one point about that is that we looked at both the, the radiation emitted um, as recorded by the machine, as well as the, the radiation exposure that she received. And the radiation exposure that she received on her thyroid badge uh, was essentially unchanged, except for if you consider her placing more distance or collimating or doing those kinds of things. Um, that wouldn't be affected by the amount of lead that she was wearing. But we did look at also the radiation that was emitted between the procedure she did before and then after she knew she was pregnant, and that was not significantly different. 
Um, but I think in general, um, the same principles apply for everyone. I think most people are not quite as vigilant about how much radiation they receive. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we didn't actually look at everyone else's radiation is because a lot of people don't wear their badge or don't turn their badges in appropriately. And so we don't have those numbers as accurately recorded. Um, but, you know, I think the same principles, the quote unquote Alara principle, which is um, radiation as low as reasonable, um, basically applies for everyone. I, I think you know, what that entails is basically putting distance between yourself and the radiation dose, putting increased, um, decreasing the amount of time, meaning decreasing the amount of time that you're exposed. So if that means decreasing your frame rate, pulse rate, or doing less um, DSA runs if possible, or and if safe, and then um, also putting as much uh, distance between or shielding between you and the and the radiation dose. So using the acrylic lead shields or stepping out of the room um, when you're doing power injections and such. Would you both then concede that um, taking standard measures such as wearing just a single lead apron um, and abiding by you know, fairly standard radiation safety protocols creates a safe environment for a pregnant woman in the angio suite? Yes, I, I would say that if you're vigilant and following the same principles, you can be very safe. You know, many women just don't know enough. And so um, they resort to wearing double or even triple lead, which is extremely harmful for women who are pregnant. They know that their backs and their pelvises hurt and wearing double, triple lead is really burdensome. And one study actually looked at how much it could potentially help. They didn't actually, you know, measure radiation doses, but did a mathematical calculation. And it was essentially less than 1% increase in protection for every lead additionally that you wear. Um, so, you know, I think the basic principles keep you pretty safe when you're pregnant is what we found. You guys comment in your discussion that only a minority of programs in radiation dominated fields have formal guidelines for radiation safety in pregnant operators. I'm using your words from your manuscript. And this really does, I think, speak to the, uh, the inherent um, systemic sexism within our field. Um, what can we do to change this and, and protect all our operators? What would your suggestions be after doing this research and writing this paper? I think the information needs to be more readily available. You know, I think going through my pregnancy, I've had issues as well, getting information on radiation, getting feedback about how much radiation I've received. And there are essentially no formal guidelines, no formal training for trainees who are not pregnant either. And they don't really know the principles of Alara. They don't know which side of the table has more x-ray. And I think all of these things are important for both pregnant and non-pregnant people and should sort of be formally taught to everyone who has any kind of radiation exposure. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think just more education, um, you know, uh, for everyone, uh, I think would be definitely the first step. Um, and, you know, providing appropriate uh, information and data to, um, you know, reassure and educate uh, trainees and staff uh, regarding the radiation would be, uh, would be, I think, very beneficial. Uh, the other thing I would also add is having some kind of um, 
contact resource or um, or uh, contact information of uh, the people working uh, for the radiation control in your in your hospital, I think is something uh, that for me, I had to look up, I had to see like, who was in charge of this, because before the pregnancy, to be honest, I wouldn't really uh, get my reports really, uh, like reliably every month and so on. Um, and I, I didn't know really who was in charge of, uh, of those things. So I had to look it up uh, and trying to find and ask people around who was uh, the responsible for this. So again, I think having like a clear uh, contact resource um, for this uh, should be should be like straightforward for people to, uh, to, uh, you know, have their uh, reports every month and also for, you know, pregnant or not pregnant uh, staff to be able to uh, get in touch with the Radiation Protection Center, I think, uh, is a key uh, aspect into in this. Yeah, ab absolutely. I, I think as neurointerventionalists, we we get very little training in radiation exposure and safety, and certainly uh, that has to be improved. I, I, I want to conclude by asking both of you, what more do we need to do to bring more women into the field? You know, I, I think diversity is a hugely important uh, issue. I have encountered it uh, as the editor of the journal um, where I have strived to improve the diversity on our editorial board and, and we've done that to to a certain extent and, and certainly uh, want to do more and be more inclusive but we really are dealing with a, a very limited number of women that go into this field how can we encourage uh, more diversity and more um, interaction uh, with women in, in this field? Well, one, I would, I would applaud you guys for um, trying to increase your diversity in your board, as well as, you know, even highlighting this particular article, um, this study, and talking to us, I think, is some of the first steps, you know, in, in increasing the visibility of women. I think also, supporting women and mentoring women to ultimately succeed in all of the aspects of academic neurosurgeon and neurointerventional um, while facing all these other challenges that we have, which for many women includes family planning. Um, you know, I think when I was a medical student, many other female medical students would rotate through neurosurgery and decide that it wasn't for them because the length of training or the vigor of training was too much. And I think that they really need to understand and they need to see that there are mentors and that there are residents and that there are fellows who are able to have successful careers while also, you know, able to have fulfilling personal lives. Um, and I think that, you know, that was one of the benefits that Marie had and even myself seeing Marie as, as my senior fellow and seeing that she was able to be an amazing uh, neurointerventional fellow while also being pregnant. And she had the benefit of seeing her mentors who were able to do the same. And, you know, I think that's sort of the first step in changing things. I think there was a 
a paper that described they're requiring a critical mass of maybe 15% of female neurosurgeons, and, and that obviously applies to neurointervention as well, um, to sort of have an adequate population from which to derive female role models and mentors for aspiring surgeons or, you know, neurointerventional surgeons. And we have yet to reach that. So I, I think that that's sort of the first goal that we can have to increase our gender equality. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, the importance of mentorship and, and really seeing who's training you, I think, are vitally important. Um, I'd ask both of you if there are any other points in this manuscript that uh, you felt that we didn't discuss that, that you needed to highlight uh, in these last minutes here. I think we went over, you know, the most important thing uh, in the manuscript, at least regarding uh, the, the main, you know, result and as well as the, the discussion uh, uh, and all the, the, the important um, aspect of, you know, uh, the demographic of women in, in our subspecialty. Um, so I think it it's pretty much wraps up um, in my mind with what is important about this article. Yeah, and I think I just want to sort of re-emphasize that the radiation risks are very low, both for fertility as well as during pregnancy. And so that applies to men and women both. And so this isn't, you know, just a study for women. I think that it's a study for both genders. Yeah, totally. Well, hopefully if we can eliminate the bias of radiation exposure, that will be one hurdle that we've knocked down to try to improve the diversity within our field. Um, I applaud both of you on this excellent manuscript. It's an important contribution to the Journal of Neurointerventional Surgery. Uh, as I mentioned at the outset, this will appear in the October print issue of the JNIS and is currently online. I encourage all of our readers to look at this important manuscript. It, uh, it really does, I think, speak to the current um, level of diversity within our field and some of the challenges that we have to overcome uh, to improve that. Uh, thank you both uh, again for your time today, and I wish both of you the best of luck. Take care. Thank you very much for this uh, opportunity. Thanks. Thank you so much for your support. We appreciate it.